0: Hate or hatred as an emotion has a close relationship with fear. Acclaimed author and PhD Siri Husberg talks with philosopher, journalist and former war reporter Carolyn Emke. They discuss the occurrence of hatred, who it can be directed at and how it's able to both unite and divide. The talk is moderated by the culture editor at Weekend of Eatsen, Catherine Chimarinsky. You're listening to a Heartland Podcast.
1: Hate has no easy definition. I think it's worth putting it in a larger context and acknowledging that throughout the you know animal kingdom, we can see forms of aggression that happen, especially among mammals, and even more particularly among primates, of which we are one. So aggression is there. Most people have experienced hatred often fleeting, but actually when uh, the subject was announced and I heard a loud whoop um, outside from someone who was celebrating the subject, I had, I think, an important thought, which is hate can be invigorating, as can violence, and it's important to acknowledge that when we're talking about this particular emotion. And also to acknowledge that it exists in us, however fleetingly, right? Um, And it is directed outward often, but there's also self-hatred, right? And um, it's very complicated, I think, Caroline should elaborate. <laughs>
2: <laughs> ah, that's how it's going to work. Um, uh, no, I think that's... Uh, that's. Uh, um, I think we already have a few aspects that are crucial. It's an effect. Mm-hmm. It's an emotion. It's yeah. not necessarily yet an act. No. Uh, and no. if we compare the emotion or the effect of hate to other emotions, I think we could say um, it's it's a hot emotion, um, uh, it's not cool, it's not, no. it's not calm. Somebody who hates does not necessarily feel to be the subject of that emotion. Um, very often people who hate um, feel a need to hate and feel a a very, very strong um, negative, but still strong attachment to that object that is being hated. And that, I think, um, is interesting because very, very often when you speak about hate, people say, oh, it's created by fear. Um, Very often in apologetic discourses, uh, when people somehow want to justify, you know, racist, anti-Semitic, homo-transphobic hate, uh, they tend to say, oh, it has to do with fear. Um, Now, I would definitely argue against this because (laughs) fear, if you fear something, you do not want to go close to it. If you hate something, you really want to destroy it and you seek the proximity. So that's that's, I think, something that we see very, very often in all Very different kinds of, um, I think, forms of hatred. But um, in particular, in I think what both series and my work um, is focusing on, namely the kind of hate that is uh, spread uh, within groups or towards groups. I think that is, that is key to know. It seeks the proximity, it seeks to destroy the other.
0: Yeah. So how did, how did hate and fear become linked? You know, or how did Oh, I think pro- that's just a
2: convenient apologetic uh,
1: discourse. It, um, it's, I- to, it's to protect the hating, right? It's a way, it's a protective mechanism, I think, to say, oh, well, you have to understand these people are driven by fear. You know, if you look at some current group hatreds, it's actually very common in the United States, for example, that people who have really hateful feelings toward immigrants live in communities where there are no immigrants. Yeah. Right, so how could they be afraid, I, you know, <laughs> except in the most abstract way? I think it's, yeah, it's an apologetic, um, way of explaining things in media often, but also in some scholarly discourse, that uh, avoids what I was talking about, the invigoration of hate. Um, our, in, the person who introduced us, whose name I know and has now flown out of my head, mentioned online discourse, where that kind of revelry in hateful speech uh, is obviously giving the hateful person a rush. I, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Could, yeah. if yeah. I Go could, could <laughs> give
2: um, maybe another way of answering your question. And I, th- I would say, evidently, I think if we are confronted with Hatred, or if we are confronted with um, racism, or antisemitism, or homon transphobia, I think the first encounter, if you are the object of this hatred, is one of disbelief. <laughs> and uh, for those of you who who know the work of um, of many of the survivors of the Shoah, Primo Levi, of Jean-Marie, uh, Ruth Kluger, and many, many of these texts, when they describe what it means to be the, you know, to be the object of this infernal um, hatred, um, there's a cognitive dissonance. I mean, each and every one of them describes this moment of not underst- just not understanding the order of terror or the order of hatred. And I think that's, you know, that I, I, I very much relate to that. I understand, I, 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 I do think that we have a moral expectation that if that's subverted, um, we are somehow um, displaced at first. So I think the attempt, um, to understand hatred, to somehow search for a reason in this, is first of all really understandable. Um, it just runs the risk of you know, a rationalization of something that should not be, to a certain extent, be rationalized. Um, and I don't know how it's here in uh, Denmark. I, I know how it's in the U.S. and I know how it's uh, in Germany. There is, you know, there's such and an, a collective public effort to somehow explain racism as something else than racism. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's that's you know that's yes. yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, that's I know. no the. I mean, the effort is incredible. It's like, I don't know, there's this children's game of, uh, in German it's called Malen nach Zahlen, where you draw connections between numbers in an image. And, you know, when you can already see the ears and you can see the really, dots, really big and body and you can see the four <laughs> legs, uh, you know, and you would be able to call it right extremism and fascism, uh, they say, oh, no, you know, I don't really know. You know, no, we can no, see no. this. And but, it has uh, that, but, you know, we don't I, really want... So there's, it, 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 there's a tendency to um, not give it a name.
1: Yeah. Sorry. Well, well no, but I also on. think we're, we're trapped inside of a fear that, right, historical precedents I mean, for, uh, well, since 2016, I've been making comparisons to European fascism in the 30s, the rise of fascism, and the United States. There are a great many comparisons that can be made without it being historically identical. But the response is very similar. It's saying, oh, don't mention Hitler. Right, We're not like Hitler, Mussolini, or God forbid, Franco. I mean, this is not the same thing. Well, yes, there are really strong parallels. And one of the strongest is in the propaganda used to marshal support. And it always turns on what you're talking about, which is the other. Different kinds of others, right? Um, And... Following that, misogyny forms of uh, reproductive control are never far behind. They go all together. Um, So, this is group Mm -hmm. hatreds, right, that I think, in the United States, but I think this has happened elsewhere, the idea of raising up an other, so we do have in the United States a more diverse culture. It's not only white men running the government. Um, You see, we had our first black president, right? Man, of course, but nevertheless, things are and have changed. For a lot of the people filled with hate in the United States, the idea of raising up a person of color, black, brown, you know, Asian person or a woman, of any color, uh, is seen as a humiliation to the white people, mostly, who are filled with this hatred for those others. So their status, in a way, is, has been reliant on the oppression or invisibility of those others, and when they see them, nothing has happened to white status in the United States, I can assure you that, but it's perceived as a personal onslaught or humiliation, and there is a psychological dynamic that I think is possible to, to talk about.
0: It seems significant to distinguish between individual hate and collective hate. I don't know who of you would like to start. Maybe, do you?
1: Well, I think most people have had intense arguments during which you hated the person you were talking to, or I feel that I have. Um, As children, most people recall the deepest, darkest fantasies about going after some mean friend. I certainly remember that. Uh, So that is very common among us. Uh, Group hatred is something else. And I think it's important to recognize that it's, it's learned. Yeah. You know you put babies together on the floor, they might get into conflicts, but they're not going to get into conflicts because, like, one has, you know, one is white and one is brown, or one is a girl and one is a boy. I mean, they, uh, this is just outside of that kind of learned hatred.
2: Yeah, I think if... I mean, at least for my work, it's it's always related to, to uh, you know, hatred of groups or of... Um, you know, individuals who are only perceived and judged by belonging to a certain group. Right. Um, I think if we want to um, still add a, a bit more of a description of hatred itself, I would say it's always vertical, it's always upwards or downwards. Um, and um, very rarely there are groups who are... Um, sort of hated in both directions. Uh, with gays that's, that's hilariously funny um, because t- t- on one hand we're sort of perverts uh, you know and sick and not normal and so that's down downwards and then at the same time we're allegedly organising the public sphere and Hollywood and I don't know what. So <laughs> it, it, it goes in both directions. But I mean, but interesting enough hatred is always always um, um, organized rhetorically in a vertical line. That's right, it's hierarchical. And yeah. I think we should say, yes, we are speaking about hate, but if we speak of um, racism or antisemitism or homo-transphobia or misogyny, um, <clears throat> we do not only speak about this, you know, this hot effect and emotion of of hating someone and wanting to destroy that person or that group or the migrants or you know uh, the Muslims or the Jews, um, <clears throat> but I think we should uh, uh, look at, uh, as Siri was saying, uh, at the processes that created. I mean, it's a it's a construction, and there's it's an industry people make money with it, uh, you know, uh, by, by producing publications, by producing CDs, by producing films, I mean it's a real, there's, there's sort of the people who act out and are on the street and very often that is what we focus on if there's yet another attack right. on you know a refugee or yet another attack on a woman on the street and then we focus on the perpetrators on the scene in the streets. Um, and I do think we should really look at those who are the ones who profit from it, who make money with it, who create um, the you know the regimes of speaking, the regimes of looking at um, yeah Muslims or, or, or Jews or, or women, and and we should look at the way these ideologies. Um, have become part of our institutions, how they have become sort of infiltrated um, our structures. If it's the police force, if it's uh, the schools, if it's, uh, you know, all kinds of societal structures are deeply, deeply, deeply... um, and, you know, to some extent, I mean, I would say sort of hate has, said has materialized; it has sedimented into the structure. So we should make sure, if we speak about hate, not to just look at one perpetrator, one terrorist, yeah. one uh, you know extremist party in Europe or the U.S., but we should look at ourselves. We should look at all the societal, cultural institutions that somehow
1: execute this. Absolutely, but, and I also think it's important to recognize that these systems replicate themselves as Carlene is saying but also that the identity, if you will, of the other keeps changing. If you think about the Uyghurs in China or you think about um, Hindu nationalism in India now that has a discourse that shares a lot with Donald Trump and with right-wing far right-wing movements all through Europe. Um, this is partly, of course, because of the internet and transmission is easier. But those hatreds are, are old. And, you know, it's good to remember that uh, during uh, the medieval period, the Jews were blamed for the plague. And there were actually two papal bulls issued saying the Jews didn't do it right? And there was real violence created by this fantasy of the Jewish other, um, you know, making magic and creating the plagues. Uh, So this is an old human story and it's good to remember that, but it is hierarchical and it is related to power and to replicating those power structures.
2: Yeah, and I think I think one should also say what it what it does. Yes, I mean, exactly. not just yeah. how it's produced, but you know how it. I mean, how it fe- how it feels to be. Um, you know, hatred is maybe the extreme work, but you could say how how it feels to be silenced, because that's. Yeah. The whole point, yeah. I mean the whole point is uh, of hatred is to have the other somehow go away, somehow disappear, somehow shut up, somehow you know not be visible, somehow not be an equal. Yeah. And yeah. I think what is so uh, It's 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 really subverse I, I don't know the best term for this, but it, it's really subversive. You lose your voice. You, it, it's, it's, you lose, I think, first of all, if, if you're being the object of, 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 of such ideologies or hatred, you lose the trust that it matters what you say. Well, and it, so yeah, that, so yeah. it, it, it makes you speechless in a way that then evidently supports the other side, so it's, sorry. uh... No,
1: no, it's that part of a person's identity, right, that has been singled out for hatred, right? So in my case, you know, I'm an old white lady in the United States, and what I felt is the shocking brutality of misogyny from time to time, right? Just like an amazing slap in the face. And um, this can often be in professional or, you know, highly sort of significant um, events. And it's exactly this. We didn't hear you. Mm -hmm. You aren't really in the room. And you didn't really ask that question. And it's a form of annihilation. Mm -hmm. And if you think about the entrenched racism that you know, is part of my country, uh, one wonders, you know, how it was possible to exist, right, from day to day with this kind of battering ram of, you know, we don't see you, you're not part of our pluralistic reality. Yes. It's terrifying. Sorry. Sorry. No. Yeah.
0: Don't apologize. No, no, I'm
1: sorry.
0: <laughs> We're talking Finished. here. No, I mean, if we probe a bit more into what does hate do, what happens when it starts working, right? Because one yeah. thing is that it being a latent, you can say thing, but, but once it starts working, you wrote an essay for Swedish pen uh, where you say that what happens is, with hate speech specifically is that it annihilates, yeah. exterminates the zone between people which enables mutual understanding. And I would exactly. like you to, to unpack that a bit more, both right. how does it do that, but also what is it you actually mean by mutual understanding? Because as far as I understand it, it's not agreement.
1: No, right. So it has nothing to do with agreement. That's important to stress. And so my whole thinking about how human beings grow and develop is that we're formed in the between, right? We develop through others, our parents, You know, we're born out of another person. Let us not forget this. And that that this between zone is the place of social contact, right? We rely on it. And what hate speech does is takes away the other side. There's no dialogue in, in, in hate speech. It just wants that person to be eliminated, and by doing that, um, the very notion of equality, respect, the dignity of the other uh, vanishes, and then there's no democracy, there's no pluralism of views, right? I mean, I think if you studied with Jürgen uh, Habermas, um, who talks a lot about this, what it means, what the rules are before a dialogue or conversation is possible. I mean, it's pretty idealistic what he sets up, I think. Um, But nevertheless, as an ideal, it's vital to how we think about democratic processes. And um, that's why the... American, especially right-wing, fantasy of free speech seems so ridiculous. Because how can you speak freely if you're not an equal partner in the conversation?
2: Yeah. Uh, could I? Could I um, add? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I think what Siri was uh, just now saying um, is is what we understand. Um, uh, uh, about ourselves as linguistic beings, as people who are um, formed and and shaped and individualized uh, with another, intersubjectively. And and you could say we're equally formed by recognition as by misrecognition. And I think that is what we're addressing earlier, that, that the impact, hatred, or resentment uh, or marginalization, or discrimination. It has a real physical, bodily impact on another. Yes. And I think that is so important um, to, to um, address because it leads us to think about the question, well, who can address and who can respond and who can criticize these practices of discrimination and exclusion and hatred. And if we understand that it's for the victim of hatred, the victim of anti-Semitism, the victim of racism, a shock, a traumatic shock to be negated as an individual, to be negated as a human being. Yeah. It also means that it has to be others who who address these questions. Um, You know, I don't want to live in a society where it's only Jews who have to criticize antisemitism? I don't want to live in a society <laughs> right. where it's only LGBTIQ who address hormone transphobia. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, I want yeah. Syria to, you know, fight for my rights. You know, as I want to fight for the rights of Jews and Muslims in Europe. So I think that's really, really important. We should not have a public. Yes. We really Thank should you. not have a public yeah. where yeah. where we delegate. The opposition, when we delegate the resistance right. against hatred to those who are the objects yeah, of it. Yeah. And then, if they do, if they actually criticize what's being done to them, it's called, oh, this is just identity politics, awokeness. Yeah, well, you
1: that's, that's, no, that's no, terrible. Seriously. Yeah. Seriously. But, no, you but know, I just, I, I. I I completely agree, and I want to add a footnote that often flies to the side of things, which is when you talk about traumatic experience, the trauma, for example, of racism or xenophobia or any of these hatreds, the physiology of this Mm -hmm. is being studied. Mm -hmm. So, a simple thing, there are some recent studies in epigenetics which is about how um, genes are expressed, right? It's after DNA replication. Everyone talks about DNA as the kind of fixed thing in people. But actually the way genes are suppressed or expressed is very uh, dependent on environmental realities. So there are studies now in epigenetics that are showing, for example, that perceived racism of you know, a group of people. Obviously, it's science; it's a research study. Uh, affects gene expression in such a way that it creates states of chronic inflammation. Mm-hmm. And if you've been following any of this, you know, inflammation that's chronic is bad, <laughs> right? It a little bit is good because that's when the body is fighting off these stressors that are coming from the outside. But chronic inflammation makes you vulnerable to a host of diseases. And in the United States, of course, during the pandemic, we have seen this in action. That the inequalities in our healthcare system, the realities of racism and classism have created a world in which the pandemic had very unequal effects depending on where you were. Uh, And that is often ignored, right? That we're talking about embodied beings and these slaps, these awful experiences have long-term effects on human beings. Their diseases they develop, all of this is related. If we, okay. the disease angle. Yeah.
0: if we move on to discuss, because I think it's very important to discuss, when do we hate? Uh, we're having this conversation now in 2022. Often one of the explanations for a rise in, in, in levels of hate is societal upheaval. What do you think of that as an explanation mm. model?
1: Go for it. <laughs> oh, um, <laughs>
2: how many how many hours do we have? <laughs> Caroline, we no, have no, seventeen um, minutes.
0: Uh,
2: uh, no, <laughs> um, look. Do I do I think there is reason for for social discomfort? Do I think there is reason for political melancholia? Um, do I think there is, in particular now with the war on the Ukraine, um, yeah. do I think there's reason to be really scared? Um, I would say yes. Yeah. And I would say okay. that you know, a, a completely limitless and aggressive form of capitalism. Um, and a hardcore ideology of privatization, mm-hmm. of deregulation, of um, the spheres that otherwise the state should take care of, I think has created you know, a sense of loneliness maybe, a sense of yeah, social discomfort of even maybe homelessness to some extent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, none of that is what is being discussed when people are searching for reasons and justifications uh, for racism or for hatred. Uh, Then it's always, it always sounds, it's always this discourse that sounds as if Poverty per se would be, you know, a source right. for racism. Right. No, that's classism, and that's bullshit. Both. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, just, it no, it's just, it's just really true. annoying. And it's, yeah. not, it's not to say. I mean, it's. If I look at the at the right extreme parties in Europe. Um, they, they were mostly formed by members of, you know, the upper middle class, extremely well-educated people. Um, those, those who are suggesting that they are defending sort of the, you know, the vox populi, you know, the, the normal people, uh, those who create this discourse of anti-elitist are members of the elite, if, I don't know what it means, but, you know, <laughs> they are. Um, and so i'm i'm always um skeptical when we have this discourse about the the connection between you know social malaise as leo Leventhal would call it um and racism um, yeah. and it, as i said I, it's it's not to say that we don't have um you know social dis- you know reasons for being uh, yeah, in a, in a state of political melancholia, but I think right. the, 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 the reason for that is uh, capitalism
1: and not migration. Yeah, and I think what you said, Caroline, was very important. <laughs> I agree. I mean, is that a lot... So we have hate speech, which we've mentioned, and this kind of overt, you know, angry, annihilate the other. But we also have... What I think of as covert discourses that come out of a neoliberal ideology that people embrace thoughtlessly. So, for example, one of my favorites is freedom of speech. Depression. Oh, sorry. Depression is a chemical imbalance. I am here to tell you that is biological nonsense. Nobody knows what a chemical balance might be in the brain, and certainly it's not about serotonin, since ha ha, they don't even know what's going on when they give you an antidepressant. The thing that is important for that discourse is that it's your problem, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't have to do with your situation. It doesn't have to do with how your love life is going, or if you're really lonely or what is happening to you that clearly plays a role in depression, and there is a ton of research to suggest that, things that happen to your ch- childhood, trauma, racism, moving countries, big deal, going from one place to another, leaving your homeland, something we're looking at over and over again. That is because then the lonely individual gets settled with feeling responsible for what are, in fact, communal Mm -hmm. issues. And we have to fight that, too, as much as hate speech, right?
0: When you talk about hatred and and start wondering, is it a cause or an effect, um, you dedicate a full chapter to the the concept of purity against hate, and I think that's totally important to, to discuss as a thing in relationship to hatred. Can you say, how, yeah, sure. how are they connected?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, I think that is a discourse we find in the US. Yeah. Uh, it's a discourse I think we find in every European uh, state at the moment is that um, difference and plurality are per se um, Described and framed as a threat. Um, which, I mean, it implicates that, I mean, or, or you, I mean, just put differently, the, the way the discourse works is to suggest that an other, be that other, you know, uh, uh, different from the norm because of the way they, uh, pray, because of the way they mourn, because of the way they love, because of the way um, they look um, or they move, um, it is somehow perceived as a threat in, this, in the sense of questioning one's own identity. I think the, the, mm. the, for me the most interesting discuss- discourse in, in, with that regard is to the veil. It is as if I, when looking at a woman who's covering her head with a veil, as if I was somehow repressed. Um, let's forget that she's not repressed per se no, by right, right, right. wearing the veil, but <laughs> yeah. there's somehow the assumption that my sh- the sheer fact that I'm looking at her contaminates my own identity, and I think, I mean, you've worked on yeah. the contamination also, but I think um, you, you have to have an extremely hypochondriac understanding of your own identity or of your own culture or of your own faith. If you fear by just seeing an other, <laughs> you know, it, you would somehow lose it. Yeah. Um, and... I really, don't, I mean, I really don't understand. If you're Catholic, I have, I mean, I'm not Catholic, but if if you are Catholic and you really care about your faith, I don't understand at all how meeting someone of an other faith would would call into question. the way you were socialized, the way you trust in the world, the way you trust in the word of God, the way you believe in a certain text. I mean, I can give a different example. I'm a soccer fan. my team is Borussia Dortmund, you could send me on a lonely island with someone who's a Bayern Munich fan and it would have no effect on me. I could, you know. You, you would could, not be having brawls no, on no. an island? No, so, <laughs> and I think, you know, I think once we understand the structure of this fear, once we understand the structure and the absurdity, of the assumption that our identity is threatened by the sheer existence or the look at another. I think we can detect it in so many discourses. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. You know, the idea that uh, the mention, it, to mention, uh, 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 you know, gay or trans identity uh, in school books, I mean the fear that suddenly children would turn trans just by reading <laughs> this book. I mean you know I read a lot of books in school none of them mentioned anybody queer and I became queer. So you know <laughs> evidently this logic doesn't work. Yeah um, I, I mean and I think we have to no I think we have to yeah. And I th- I'm, I'm serious. I think we have to really understand this, the, the, the mechanism, and we have to oppose it by saying, this is, this is my last sentence, this is what's so beautiful about the concept of a liberal democracy.
1: Right. It is,
2: yeah. we don't have to like each other. No. We just have to respect each other. I don't have to... Believe in the same. I don't have to have the same practices as another. I don't have to look the same way. Um, but all that—it's—it's it's sort of normatively not very demanding. We do, you know, no, certainly
1: we don't have to like each other. No.
2: All we have to do is respect each other, and I think
1: we have to argue for that again. Listen, no, I totally agree, and at the same time, I think these are are actually rather deep things. I often return to what, for me, was a really important text called Purity and Danger by Mary Douglas. And there she identifies all these border issues, which is just what you're talking about, and the feeling... She roots it in the body, that crossing the threshold of the body is always dangerous.
2: Hmm?
1: You know, invasion by germs or by another, whatever, that it's a dangerous thing. And we have protective urges. And that to separate those real body politics from the body politic, from the society and its own boundaries, Is an error.
2: Yeah, but it's no, it's, I mean, I don't know, but it it seems, um, I would say, uh, uh, consequential that both Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump are in sheer panic of germs. And if you look at I the agree, long
1: table. Yeah. Yeah. If you look at the long
2: <laughs> table Vladimir Putin is sitting at, at the moment, or the fear of Donald Trump of you know giving somebody a hand and handshaking. Yep. It's the fear of impurity. You Absolutely. Know, and and so I think if we cherish this um, with with all we have, I mean, really, if we cherish diversity and pluralism with all we have, with music, with art, in schools, I think that is, yeah, the most beautiful form of resistance to this, you know, dogma both of purity and of hatred.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Is it... We have we really have a lot of agreements here. I hope that's not too boring. <laughs> no. In your,
0: you've made a very strong defense for, um, and you borrowed a concept from Foucault. But truth telling, can you explain briefly what that is and why that is a way, why that could matter also in this? Yeah, process? I
2: think what it what. Um, I think a public sphere that is as aggressive, as um, hateful as the one uh, that we're facing at the moment. And if we look at the international global context and we see sort of, of, the, of the last couple of years the rise of authoritarian, yep. anti-democratic, um, misogynist... Um, anti-enlightened regimes in uh, the US, uh, in Brazil, um, in Turkey, uh, in Russia. Um, I think we we can see that they always have a very similar um, rhetoric and they have a very similar structure and the structure is always uh, the nostalgia for a fictitious past where allegedly everything was better, and better for them means n- not so many human rights. You yeah. And, yeah, You know, uh, traditional family values, and they may have a reference to um, you know, a radical form of Islam. They may have the reference to radical form of evangelicalism. I mean, it's yeah. so they may have just different religious justifications, but the but the political structure is is, is just the same. And I think um, we have to. Um, yeah, I mean, we have to address this, we have to, to, to that's what I say with uh, the Foucauldian understanding of speaking the truth to power, um, we have to dare to um, criticize ideologies and practices that exclude us and that want to transform our societies into very homogenous, um, racialized, purified uh, societies, uh, where you know there's a requirement for equal rights, and that is that you're somehow culturally or physically or sexually equal. Um, and so, I do think that it's. I think very often all of us, and I assume everybody who's here, we feel. Um, overwhelmed by, you know, the discourse on social media, the discourse of the public sphere, the discourse in parliament. And I think...
1: Um, I just, you know, I, I just want to say one thing. I sure. think you're... No, just... When you really think about things hard, you become very quickly humble. Because you're faced with ambiguities all over the place, and hybrids, not just in ideas, but in in, in human beings, right, and our very human development. And that humility of not being certain, of knowing how complex the world is, and how rich, and different, and diverse, creates an opening for democratic discourse because you don't know, right? You're not sure. Yeah,
2: I think I agree, and yet I have to admit, there's less and, no, 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 I agree. But I think the the problem of certain public spaces, at least, is that it's more and more difficult to speak with a sense of insecurity, to speak with a desire for exchange, you know, to speak with a need for skepticism. And I think, sorry, and and I think (laughs) um, at least uh, if we look at the way that, that the conversations on television are designed. They are designed in this silly pro and contra uh, format that basically annihilates the possibility of actually thinking in that kind of way, because you're permanently supposed to, you know, argue against something and and and. So I think we have to change those formats first. Yes. And then we can somehow create spaces like this one, where it's possible... No, seriously. Where it's it's possible to have a transnational conversation. Um, And I mean really a conversation on... (laughs) Oh, sorry. I should shut up. No, Uh, it's okay. It's 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 completely... It's okay. But it's uh, true. (laughs) We have (laughs) a transnational (laughs) conversation that (laughs) stops
0: now. To wrap up, I do want to say that I really think that your books, but also this conversation emphasizes, as you said now, the importance of conversations, the importance of language, the importance of paying close, close attention and not being nonchalant about details, really, really caring about the details. And I want to thank you for being here. (laughs) Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to a Heartland podcast. The talk was recorded live at Heartland Festival 2022. We hope that the talk has provided insights and perspective and that you're inspired to check out our other podcasts. They can be found on our website or where you usually listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.